Identity Talk. I'm your host, Jana Lopez. Thank you for sharing your time with me. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about uncovering meaning about who we are and how we come to see ourselves. Words and identity are my life. I'm the author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. I teach online writing workshops called Write About Now and offer one-on-one transformative coaching sessions that break you through to deeper clarity and connection with yourself through a guided process I call See Through Words. When it comes to navigating identity funky junk, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope mixed with humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. My guest with me is an author of a book that's recently come out in January, and the book is called American Baby, A Mother, a Child, and the Shadow History of Adoption. And Gabrielle Glazer and I met, I want to say, 23-ish, maybe 24 years ago. We both lived in Portland, Oregon. She was a reporter at the Oregonian, and I was a PR (laughs) consultant working for a lot of nonprofits that benefited children and families. And so we had this past of this time when we were both doing somewhat different things and then reconnected because we have a mutual friend who lives in New York, Naomi. And when I found out she knew Gabrielle and, you know, she explained, oh my God, we've been friends for so long. It was a really sweet connection to come back around to. And then of course, Gabrielle's book is out and has gotten so much national attention. It's crazy. Um, Congratulations on the book and the attention. Well earned. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for that warm introduction and your nice words. And yeah, it is a, 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 it is a sweet connection that we, that we share when we look back at times of our lives where we were doing certain things or in certain places and then years later you know I always think to how how lucky we are that we're here and that we're doing things because 22 23 years is a long time a lot of things happen in that time and so I'm always really grateful that when I can have a piece of a past with somebody and then share a, a big part of their present with them and be excited about what they're up to and what they've accomplished. So writing a book is no small feat in this book. Wow. When I read about all of the places you had to go to do the research and all the conversations you had, I would love for you to start there and talk about how much time and research and all the energy that it took to put this book together. It's a very deep book. So tell me a little bit about that. So the book is about the story of my late friend, David Rosenberg, who I met in Portland in 2007 on a newspaper story. Uh, He was an adopted guy getting a kidney from a friend. And in the first interview, he told me that he hoped he that the story would go viral and that he it would help lead him to his birth mother in New York City. He wanted he was very specific. He wanted to know more medical information for his three kids. He didn't want to impugn the uh, relationship that he'd had with his late adoptive parents. He loved them very much and didn't want to in any way tarnish that link. So I wrote the story. It was a newspaper story in 2007. In 2008, I moved from Portland to New Jersey. In 2014, David called me to tell me that he had taken a DNA test that ultimately allowed him to be able to reunite with his birth mother. And her name was Margaret Katz. She, the one thing that David had always believed 
was that he'd been given up, that he'd been an inconvenience to his birth mother, the sketchy part of the information that he had in a, in a closed, secretive adoption, which is how adoptions were almost uniformly, universally conducted in the post-war era. She was a young science student who kind of made it, information that he had kind of made it sound like she was going off to medical school and really just had other plans for her life. Nothing could have been further from the truth. When David called, having located Margaret, he learned that she had never wanted to, in his words, give him up. She had done everything she could to fight the system in order to retain custody of him. She had married his birth father, and they'd had three more children. He had three full siblings, including one who shared a vocal career with him. He was a cantor at a synagogue in Portland, and his baby sister was a famous opera singer in Berlin. So here are these two people reared worlds apart who shared this deep connection. But the thing about the connection, which I, I think was what we're going to talk about, the connection and energy aspect of, of this conversation in this book, is that David and Margaret were able to meet three months before he died. He had cancer, but he also had been afflicted with a number of illnesses that Margaret had spent her life trying to warn him about. And the adoption agency had never passed on the messages. But the biggest thing for David at the end of his life was to have that narrative of having been given up reversed. That's huge. He realized that he'd been loved and shared and wanted. I mean, I'm sure a lot of adoptees feel that. I'm wondering in your conversations with David, did he talk about that feeling of abandonment? Did he get to the personal emotional stuff aside from the medical questions he had? No, David was a real guy's guy. His voice was had really dwindled because of the cancer. We didn't talk about the abandonment. We didn't. I know he mentioned to some of his uh, female friends in Israel when he was a young man that he hoped one day he would be able to meet his birth mother, but he didn't really engage those those questions of abandonment. A lot of adoptees feel that. Many vocalize it. Yeah. All of the science, all of the research that we have about adoptees from those closed adoptions, uh, from all actually from most adoptions, is that. The narrative that we hear, this ideology that we hear about adoption is that the, this person loved you so much, they gave you up. This person loved you so much, they gave you to somebody else to raise. So what does that do to your sense of trust, to your sense of self, to your sense of confidence that you're worthy of love? It's really damaging to have that narrative kicking around in your head your whole life. David was able to accept his mother's love and this ending of the story that he'd been an inconvenience. You know, when you want to talk about energy, when, when he called me in 2014 to tell me this the first time, it was so hushing. He said, are you sitting down? I found my birth mother. She never wanted to give me up. That powerful phrase sounded so healing for him. Mm -hmm. It had to have been healing for her to be able to convey the deferred love of 52 years. Mm -hmm. And it was healing for me as a human being to hear it. So that's a really long way of answering your story about the energy involved. But the energy of that one sentence, of that one aspect of the human experience and the love between a mother and her son, it was really a huge draw to be able to tell that story. I think it's lovely that you as a human being also have a chance to be part of somebody else's human experience in a really genuine and authentic way. And how fortunate are we to be part of other people's stories as writers, as storytellers, or as just people that care and that have an open heart and keep our eyes open to other people. To me, to be part of those moments, and, and there, there are a lot of them, they happen, you know, they happen every day. Like that's the beautiful part of humanness. Some days when things are challenging or difficult, or we feel sad about things or things aren't going that way to me, like I fall back to those stories because that's where I feel we have our greatest human capacity. That's a really lovely thing that you said, 
because on one hand, I was so lucky to be able to talk about the kidney story. I mean, you you know Portland, you know the Portland community, and David was part of a spiritual community. So the spiritual connection of of getting the you know life saving kidney from his close friend um, was really powerful. It was a powerful thing to witness. I was in the hospital the day of the. Um, of the surgery, I actually saw the, you know, the kidney that was came from Marshall Specter and was going into David Rosenberg's body, and so that was, you know, I've, I I haven't reflected on that very much because it was it's been what is that fourteen years? Yeah, fourteen years. So that was that was amazing, and then to be able to to chronicle this twin narratives of David's life and his mother's life, but most importantly, the imperative, David learned that, you know, as I said, that his, his mother had tried to warn him desperately, indefatigably, with every single bit of energy, coming back to energy that she had. Um, her son was taken from her. She was a minor in 1961 when he was born. Um, she had no support from her family, from her boyfriend's family. And there was this whole secretive system of adoptions in this country where young girls were getting pregnant out of wedlock um, in very great numbers. The sexual revolution was simmering in the years after the war, but there was no birth control. There was no sex education and no abortion. And teenagers had a lot of privacy for the first time in their lives in the new suburbs. About 3.5 million young women at least got pregnant, got sent away to give birth in secret and had to surrender their children, many under the threat of law. Premarital sex was, believe it or not, um, a crime in New York State until 1971. Margaret Earl Katz, David's mother, did not have a chance. This baby was taken from her and his identity was sealed in his original, uh, the, the original documents of his birth, his original birth certificate, which named his, his name, his birth mother's name, and when he was adopted by a very loving, wonderful couple, he was issued a second amended birth certificate that gave listed only his adoptive name and the name of his adoptive parents as his original mother and father. So that secretive system, which is still in place in 40 states, 41 states, is really damaging and hurtful to adoptees who, as adult men and women, are not allowed to access their very own origin stories. So David, when David understood that this is what had kept him apart from his mother, he basically said, try to make sure this doesn't happen to other people. So as writers, it's our imperative, it's our, it's our duty to examine not only powerful and intimate narratives, but also where the system has failed us what we can do to fix it. Was he angry or disappointed or despondent or surprised or like, I mean, I'm sure there's a mixture of emotions anytime a child has the opportunity to fill that bucket of questions because I do have friends who were adopted and there's that longing, you know, there's something that's always longing within them about knowing who they are and that knowing who their parents are helps them to define their own identity their own story of their identity. One of my friends, the friend that I went to go visit in New York, he was adopted. And when he finally got to meet his birth mother, and I'm sure everybody has their own story or their own version, but it was such a mixed bag. Like he was grateful, but at the same time, the reality was so much different than whatever that fantasy had been in his mind that he had spent years imagining. If I, I don't know how I would feel to know that there were some institutionalized or legal barriers or, or laws or systems in place that would have had such an impact on my life and the outcome of my life that I had nothing to do with, right? <laughs> yeah, it's insane. And David was David died three months after he met his birth mother, Margaret. So I didn't get the chance to talk to him about, he was really ill. I didn't and I wasn't a super close friend. I was a, you know, if you knew David Rosenberg, you were his friend. It wasn't like I was, I'd written about him in this intimate space of getting the kidney donation. And I was friendly with his family and I was friendly with kidney donor Marshall Spector, but I wasn't 
an intimate, intimate right. friend who was going to be talking to him in his waning days. But I do know that certainly Margaret was angry and very, very beyond perplexed and felt she felt so betrayed. She and David are Jewish and adoptions in the years after the war, actually for almost a century in New York state were dictated by the religion of the birth mother. So if a birth mother was Jewish, the child automatically was placed with the aid of a Jewish agency with a Jewish couple. Same with Catholic birth mothers and Catholic families, Protestant birth mothers and Protestant families. So having been in the midst of this this religious rubric and a and an agency that was well known and well established, even prestigious, that people had trust. Margaret's rage at finding out that her son had never gotten the messages about serious conditions, diabetes being mm-hmm. one, another deeply painful one that nobody's looking at in a 20-year-old kid is mm-hmm. gout. Uh, David was diagnosed with gout, which is very uh, heritable, and just a whole host of other things that he was never warned of. And had someone been able to monitor that, the possibility of that, he could have been spared. We don't know. We can't go back and look, wave a magic wand and, and change time. But it's it's conceivable that having had that information, having had that energy spent to have it been received to the right place could have altered the course of his life. Yeah. I don't know how he felt about that. I can't imagine happy, but and I'm not going to try to put work. I think the perspective of the mother is equally justifiable. I mean, I can't imagine as a mom having those thoughts or those concerns or those worries and then to find out that you couldn't even protect your child from a distance without, you know, I don't know. Like I, there's, there would just, it would break my heart. And what I think your book does, interestingly, I didn't expect it, you know, but you really weave in how it's about human rights and civil rights and legal rights and women's rights. And there are so many layers of who has the right to know who their birth parents are or as birth parents to know what happened to our children. And I think you did a really amazingly well-researched and thoughtful and diplomatic way of looking at those issues and letting the facts speak or the research share what we know now. And what we have known and still knowing the impacts of all of those layers and how that has affected millions of people. That was really surprising to me too. I knew that the narrative of these two people and their bittersweet reunion was really a powerful story, but I was surprised myself to understand the entire back framework that was responsible for that separation between a mother and the child she wanted very much to keep. And, you know, essentially the state, it was a series of institutions. It was a religious institution. It was the institution of the family. It was the institution of of the adoption agency, and lastly, the state, this whole series of obstacles that got in the way of this little family being together, a a mother and father and, and, and this little baby who they conceived as teenagers. So yeah, that was really surprising to me. And that was, you know, I spent a lot of time really making sure that I discovered so much villainy in this process nationwide and some of it was so shocking to me some of it was so hard to process Mm -hmm. that I had to the more I found the more I wanted to include because I wanted to expose it and I wanted to expose that ugly energy yeah also I wanted to expose what our country did in the name of this mythology that adoption is always better for it, you know, it always works out great. 
that was the that was the narrative of post-war adoption. These girls got pregnant. They were no good. Um, they needed to, you know, just forget they'd ever had these children. And the adoptee got to go to better parents. And by better, better meant married. That was it. And of course, adoption can be a lovely thing and necessary and beautiful. And not all parents are capable of raising their children. Of course, that's that's entirely possible. Adoption can be wonderful. But in those years, that closed secretive aspect of it, it, it was it was certainly not. It was devastating. How did you process all this? awareness and information. I mean, that's a lot to take on. And had you come in contact with other people who had similar passions or interests to help or make the wrong right? And somehow did you come across that in your travels? I did. I was able to meet probably a hundred birth mothers at different conferences and people I was able to meet First online, there are there are a great number of birth mothers in the New York area. So I spent a lot of time getting to know their stories so it could bolster Margaret's own narrative, which was very powerful. Uh, she once people suffer a trauma, they there you can go, as you know, you can go two ways. You can forget about it forever, or you can remember it in the greatest possible detail. Mm-hmm. And it's that you know that kaleidoscope of, of memory for the events that happened that changed the course of her life man she just remembers everything if we needed to call her right now and say what was the weather like on may 31st 1962 she'd be able to t- i mean she just that was the period where she was losing her baby she would be able to remember yeah I had her story, but I had the stories of so many other women. And then I got to know adoptees because David David passed away in 2014. I started writing the book in 2016. I needed people who could speak to the adoptee experience. So I met a lot of young people, many of whom are in their 40s, who are 40s and early 50s, who are really energized and galvanized by the adoptee rights movement and meeting those folks who are trying as we speak in so many different states to um, allow adoptees access to obtain their own original documents, meeting those people really injected me with a ton of energy and a ton of purpose. And I realized, okay, in these gigantic states, New York, for example, um, original birth certificates to adoptees in early 2020 after a 40 some odd year fight. Wow. Texas is still this week. This week is adoptee rights activists in Texas are fighting in Austin for that, for that right just this moment. In Maryland yesterday, m- white male lawmakers shut down a bill that would have allowed adult adoptees to have that 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 right to their original documents. So this is an ongoing debate. You just can't just before I got on the call, I started watching the testimony of the Maryland lawmakers again. It's you cannot believe it's 2021. You cannot believe the arguments that oh no, the the birth mothers need to be protected from these adult sons and daughters who might come after them. And might need something from them. No, they want their documents. They want to know who they are. Yeah, it was preposterous. Yeah. Th- this happened March twenty twenty one. Yeah, it's um... so that and you can see. You know, speaking of energy, as you can see, it's something that you can. There's a lot of energy there, and there needs to be. When you were going through these uh, conversations and talking to parents, mothers, and adoptees, children, did it ever get you to reflect about your own course as a child to the parents that you belong to or as a mother to the children that you have? Like, did you ever imagine, because as you were talking about that, I I put myself in that, like trying to hear all those stories. And then I, for me, I would reflect on what that would have been like to have been adopted. Or if for some reason I had to put my child up for adoption, I I don't know. I can't imagine what that would be like, but when you're so close to it and you're hearing so many stories, I would think that something would come up about being a mother or a child in some way around adoption and the path that you have. Both of those things were really very present for me. 
I'm the mother of three daughters, young adult daughters. And they were very much chosen. They were very much desired. They were very much considered. They were, I'm certainly not a perfect mother. I have a very deep connection to them and they to me. And so as I thought about the connection I have with my girls in the moments that you have as a parent, as a mother, whether it's carrying the child, whether it's giving birth, whether it's those early hard years of sleeplessness and nursing, and and then the years beyond that where the strep throat years, you know what I'm talking about? The ear infections, strep throat years, the the years with the stomach flu where you're pulling out sheets in the middle of the night. Do we have enough sheets to, this poor kid just can't stop throwing up. You think about those experiences and what it goes in, the, the, the love and care and tenderness that you have, reading to a child, doing homework, mm-hmm. taking teeth from the, you know, so the tooth fairy can find them, uh, or, put, you know, putting, sneaking in, you know, dollar bills in exchange for the tooth. You just think about those, those experiences and what, how lucky we are mm-hmm. as mothers to... You know, I, I just, I, I, there was a photograph of Margaret in the book where she had given birth to her second child. She was married by then to David's father, George Katz. And she, they, they've got the baby that they're taking home from the hospital. And the look she has on her face is so wary. Her mother, who had really been the driving force behind her going off to the maternity home and surrendering the child. Margaret is a, I think she's, she was 20. She's a beautiful 20-year-old young mother, but looking at her mother with such a gaze, it almost says, you can't take this one away from me. And you just, can you imagine not being able to take your own child home from the hospital? Nope. Long, another long-winded answer of my saying, yeah, I, I had three children and I got to take them home. Yeah. That's the part about the stories, at least when you're really honest and with them and you're trying to document their experience, but it's almost impossible to not let have that some of what's coming up from, from their point of view, you know, you think about it when you go home at night, (laughs) it's just not as simple as turning that off. Yeah. (laughs) Just looking in my office. I have pictures of my grandfather and his four siblings in Alberta. Great. I have pictures of my great, uh, my great grandparents. I have pictures of two sets of great grandparents. I know their names. I know what their lives were like. I know where they come from. I knew where they came from. I have pictures of my ancestors all over my house. That's something else that I realized in the writing of this book, how much I took for granted. When you are adopted, you have ancestors who belong to someone else. Mm -hmm. That's not in your blood. You don't have those those people in your, you don't carry their blood in your veins. Mm -hmm. No matter how much you're loved and cherished and how much your family loves you as an adoptee, those ancestors are not people you are related to. That's not your kin. Yeah, and it's interesting. That must feel really lonely. Well, it would be really lonely because we have the privilege, luxury, opportunity, dumb luck, whatever it is, that we can define our identity based on what we do. You know, I'm a journalist. We can base it on being a mother. I'm a mother. You can base it on being Jewish or whatever it is. You have that. But the fundamental formation, basis, connection, reality of your identity is not pulled out from under you to where everything else around it doesn't make sense. You know, if like you don't have that one thing that makes sense and then not a lot else is going to make sense. It's not going to be as easy to put, put something together. I understand that. And so that's why I'm so fascinated with how we come to see ourselves and who we are and what it is that has meaning. And to me, I do take some of that for granted. I do know who my mother is. I do know where I'm from and all the craziness. And as we would say, Michigas, <laughs> I know mm-hmm. where it derives. <laughs> I can, I can own right. it. Right. For the writing of the book, you know, telling the story, getting into these people's lives, doing all the research, having all of these 
pieces in place. At what point in your own writing did you know what the heart of the book was about? Sometimes as a writer, like I don't really know what the heart of my work is until some point later, I'm like, that's it. That's the heart of my book or the work or for myself, not for what I'm trying to create or craft so I can sell it or pawn it off or peddle it or whatever it is that I'm trying to do. Did you have a moment when you were working on it when you said to yourself, wow, that's that's what it is for me. That's the heart of it. Or was it always there and beating the whole time you were writing it? The story of the forces behind the separation was always front and center. The magnets that were trying to be together that got forced apart, that force separating those those ties is sort of, it's really abstract, but that for me would come back to me. I did a ton of archival work here. I did a many, many interviews as, as you mentioned. I crisscrossed the country from Portland to Kansas City to uh, Atlanta to New York, New Jersey. I also went to Toronto where David lived for a while and twice to Israel where David had lived as a young man and where many of his adoptive relatives lived. So the writing of the story, there were many different chapters sort of emotionally. There were yeah. there was the chapter of Margaret's life and recreating what it was like in early 1960s New York, what it was like to be a young girl coming of age in that era where women were supposed to have children. The baby boom was in full swing. Mm -hmm. It was imperative for families to create large broods. And yet there was no understanding of how those, all those babies, those of us who were born in the baby boom, how those babies came into being. Mm -hmm. Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, Lucille Ball was the first pregnant woman on television. Mm -hmm. The first pregnant woman on television, TV had been around for 10 years. It was the mid-1950s, and she demanded, they didn't want to show her her pregnant belly on TV. She demanded, she was a mom. She was a mom in real life. She was married to her on-air husband, and they didn't want her, CBS didn't want her TV showing her belly. They had separate twin beds. They went to bed in separate twin beds. I so that. I wanted, that was a chapter. To write about that, to write about that era, to write about what that was like. So that was that was a chapter. Then the chapter of learning about David's life as a young man coming of age, the writing process, the hardest part, it was easiest to write about people. It was mm -hmm. easiest to write about people and their lives and their narrative. That part was was a joy, mm -hmm. even though sometimes it was deeply painful. It was it was self-evident and sort of I was guided by the material and you, right. you know as a writer at this point I'm, I've been around for a while you kind of can see where the good material is versus where the great material is and you never want to sacrifice great material by having by including too much good material at this point I'm able to sort of winnow that out but the hard part was really the the historical stuff the investigative stuff that I that I discovered really just awful diabolical treatment of, of babies who'd been surrendered for adoption by the very agencies who were tasked with caring for them. Mm -hmm. um, that was hard. That was really hard. That wasn't, that when you encounter material like that, when you encounter historical fact like that, on one hand, you look at it and you hold it and it's, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you hold it. The documentation that I had of some of those experiments, I downloaded them and they were they came in, in studies from the 1950s and 60s. And I found out about them, I, you know, you pay 34 bucks and you download them and then you print them out on your computer. And I, as I was holding them, I realized, my God, scientists in the United States, funded by the United States government, perpetrated this evil on 10-minute-old babies to see gauge their intelligence. That was, you asked how I felt, that was really hard. That I was really angry. I went through periods. I look at back at it now and I see, wow, I was really just ornery carrying that around. That's a lot. But yeah, now that it's out there in the world, I, I feel like, oh, okay, I shared it with people. It's, I feel better. It's kind of like you said you started writing the book in 2016. Mm -hmm. So 
five years. Mm -hmm. My book took four years when I was done writing it. It comes in phases. I think people don't really understand like the cycle of a book flow for a writer is really interesting because you're in it, you're in it, you're in it, you're in it. Then it goes to an editor and then there's like six months of sort of being in it and then they're going back and forth and then there's the logistics of the the actual distribution and then the you know the design of everything i mean it's sort of it happens in so many phases that by the time the book is actually out in some ways i mean at least for me in my experience and i've only written one was glad that it was out and it was no longer mine like (laughs) at that point then it was out and it was like, great, we can talk about it. You're going to ask me how I felt on that chapter on that day and in that moment, but I'm not there anymore. So it almost makes it, I'm, I'm better able to talk about it, I think, objectively in some ways, because I don't feel like it belongs to me anymore. I appreciate that you said that. Interesting thing was that the book was supposed to come out in June of 2020, but then the pandemic hit, they decided, okay, we're going to push this to January. Hopefully we'll have Whatever it is, we will have, I mean, we all thought that the pandemic would be over by whenever we thought it was going to be over and here we are still in it. But it it is true. You have this, this process of, I pressed send. Now it goes to an editor and the editor, you know, it's like you said, there are six months back and forth and then another six months back and forth. And the process was pretty long and involved and had to be lawyered. And, you know, there were just so many steps and copy edited and all those things. And I was prepared and really engaged with the material in about February of last year, preparing for this June launch, and then Mm -hmm. it didn't happen. And I put it on ice and I covered COVID for a while, covered the mental health aspects of COVID. And it's not that I forgot about it, but I did. I I, I mean, I just put it away mentally and emotionally. Yeah, you set it aside. Yeah, I set it aside. And then in December... I re-engaged with it and I re-engaged with it in a very different way. Mm-hmm. And I was really grateful for that pause. Mm-hmm. And it gave me more sort of renewed thoughtfulness about it. I understand. And this was interesting. I don't know if you've had this experience with your book, but you know, I can't really look at it. I have it around. This is my fourth book. I couldn't ever really look at any of them. The audio book, they sent me a link and I had chosen a, a, a narrator who I really liked. We'd gone through a couple of different people and I really fastened on this one woman. Her name is Kata Mazur. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She just the first time I heard a, a, a clip of her voice, I said, that's it. I hope we I hope we're able to get her. And we were, and that was great. And a little QA at the end of the book with the where I speak to Margaret really lovely. Yeah. Lovely for people to be able to hear her voice. Anyway, listening to the book from someone else's voice. I understand. It's such a different experience. No, it is. It's almost like someone else. Did you feel that way about your your own uh, the audiobook? I narrated my own book. I see. What was that like? It was kind of meta of the meta of the meta uh-huh. because here I was. It's my words. I'm reading my words and then I'm listening to me reading my words. <laughs> it was, right. It's the strangest thing. But what I really, for me, you know, and every writer's different, every every author's different, Who whoever wants to write a book out there, I strongly encourage you to just play with this, get curious about this. If you're going to do an audio book, just try it, see what mm-hmm. works for you, because you never know. But for me, people that read my book tell me they can hear my voice so distinctly. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've heard that from dozens and dozens and dozens of people that said, oh my God, I can sit there and I can totally hear your voice. So for me to do the audio book and for people to listen to it, it wasn't that far off from what I imagine people experience when they read the book and what they hear in their head, because I write like I speak, I guess, in this book. What you were saying to your point, when you have distance and then you can go back and re-engage with your own work It was nice to see that I liked what I did. It was nice for me to see that I thought I did a good job. It was nice for me to see 
that I, I would read it. Like I would pick it up and I would read it myself. So there's something affirming yeah. because as a writer, as any artist knows, you're not always sure how you feel about your own work. Yeah. And so for me, when I was done with that book and I got it in my hand and I looked at it, I, I knew there was not one thing I would have done different. And I was super proud of it. Now that doesn't happen for a lot of things. And in a lot of ways in life, like yeah. I could pick it apart till the cows come home or, you know, I call it parade shitting where you take and you shit on your own parade, right? Like where you've done something and you can criticize it. But I would have to imagine for you objectively having time to step back and then look at it. So much research, so much time, so many conversations, so much love, so much investment and ultimately so much impact that you, you, I would hope, and if you don't, but, you know, but you should be super proud of what an amazing, you know, accomplishment that is to, to gift this to the world of adoptees and their mothers who are hoping for something to change. Like you've given them that hope back, you know, that's, that's really huge. Oh, Jenna, that's really, that means a lot. Thank you. Uh, but I didn't do it by myself. I had a wonderful publishing team. I had a tremendous editor, tremendous literary agent who's a narrative nonfiction person who just helped me for nine months get the proposal in shape. I mean, it was really rigorous, much more rigorous process than I'd ever been through before. But more than that, I had the mm -hmm. guiding experiences of this woman who lost her son one of her daughters, so the, the daughter who's the opera singer, I, I've gotten close to her too. And here's this woman who had this missing shadow of a big brother hanging over her whole life that she didn't even know about until three months before he died. And as soon as she found out about him, it was boom, wow, there's that puzzle. And then I had this gentleman, David, who died and his family who had welcomed his birth kin into their home in the final months of his life i cannot imagine that i mean you can't make that, that yeah, stuff i mean up. talk about talk about wow just the generosity of everybody involved and the loss that the that the you know the, the family has in the wake of having lost their husband and father there's just so much there, I really appreciate what you said, but that it just, I felt like I had, writing a book, it's not even a village. It's like a whole city. Of, it's a thing. <laughs> it's a thing of people and hearts and thing. people and hearts and words and feelings and uh, plane trips and, and um, photographs in this case and yeah, I just, I didn't, that energy does not come from just me. It was, it was, it was also, there was a spiritual dimension to it too. It came from far beyond um, what we can see. I believe and that. Here. Yeah, for sure. I think any form of expression is spiritual because we can't, there's oftentimes things that we create that we don't even know how we did it. And I cannot imagine on one hand, it's a beautiful, amazing thing that they got to connect with him before he died. What are the chances of that? that that's kismet, right? That could have been a lost thing that it would have been and could have been, should have been that, that actually came to life for everyone. But then the sadness, like you meet your son and then he dies. I mean, that would be the ultimate heartbreak all over again. It's just waves of heartbreak. But what I've learned, because I wrote a lot about grief, how we experience grief in our lives, is that somebody once told me to evolve is to mourn. And that always stuck with me. I think I was like 22 or something when I had this conversation with somebody. But every time we move into a place of our lives where we're connecting to something new, experiencing something new, or we have an opportunity to go in a new direction, something always dies in its wake somehow, some part of us, some piece of us, somebody we knew, something that happened. And grief is one of those things because it came on the heels, in this case, of such an awakening, right? Such mm -hmm. a reunion, such a beautiful, a beautiful mm -hmm. thing. And 
So you can't have one without the other, I suppose. I don't know. It's amazing and beautiful and sad and heartbreaking. And, you know, look at what you've been able to create in the mix, what you've been able to give and to be part of that. It's got to be amazing. And I, you know, people always say, what are you working on next? Like you barely got out of this thing. (laughs) You're barely out, but but you know, did it, does it inspire you to follow the same path or are you interested in other topics or where did it lead your own creative sensibility? Thank you for acknowledging that because yeah, sometimes it's so anxiety provoking to have somebody say, what are you working on next? Are you serious? I'm just, honestly, I I am just, (laughs) I know I'm still trying to decide as you said, what this book was about. I mean, of course I understand it, but, but you know, the ripple effects of it, the people who are reaching me from all over the world, I wasn't expecting that, you know, that's, that's a, that's a, this, these forced adoptions took place in Canada. They took place in Ireland. They took place in, they took place all over. So that's something I'm thinking of, but the, uh, we would like to think that because many adoptions are open now, and that mm-hmm. is that birth mothers who are unable to raise their children choose families they wish to place their their sons and daughters with. And we'd like to think that, mm-hmm. well, it's transparent now, it's open. Look, we the children have the chance, adoptees have the chance to integrate both their birth families. They're not just some big blank slate. They understand the reasons why they're, they're they were placed with a different family. And they have an, adop- an adoptive family and everything works out great, right? No. Uh, Adoption Mm -hmm. remains a very big, lucrative business that is totally unregulated. It varies. Rules about it vary from state to state dramatically. There is a lot of shady stuff that's going on that continues to go on. I would would have liked to have thought that it got wrapped up. The, The unethical aspects of it were behind us. That is not true. So what I'm hearing from, from readers is now, thank you for writing this book. Would you like to talk to me? Because I have mm-hmm. a really dramatic story that I'd like to share with you. So that is what I, I believe will occupy me. Certainly many months, if not more. Did that surprise you? Like this was going to go down this path? No, I didn't actually. Um, the last book I wrote was about the rehab industry and the uh, it was about women drinking more than ever before. And then I took a, a really hard look at how people get better once they have get into trouble with uh, drinking patterns that might be not incredibly healthy for them. That book came out and the response of the rehab system and its failures, not just for women, but for everybody. That occupied me for another two right. years, and that was so. I wasn't really, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what I would hear from people, and of course, I've heard at conferences and things. I've heard people say, "You really need to be looking at what's happening now." Um, it's it, it's just as 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 predatory as it ever was in the dark old days, but I didn't I didn't know the reality of all of it. And it's shocking. Hopefully this creatively fuels you and you don't feel the weight of the expectation as being the adoptee, you know, advocate now or whatever, where people want to project or put their labels on you now. Hopefully this is something, I mean, I can just hear it, that it does fuel you and creatively spark you. But sometimes I think socially, culturally, once we do something and it's out there, people want to project all that stuff onto us about being that person that's doing that thing. But I know there's so much to you and there's a lot of things you care about. And I would think being a journalist is an interesting form of seeing the world, but being a writer is different than being a journalist. In my mind, I see them as two different things and as being a creator, which is a third thing, right? So somebody who's a journalist, somebody who is a writer and somebody who's who's a creator you've been able to blend all those things but hopefully you're finding ways and navigating it so that it continues to inspire you and teach you and show you things about yourself too that's my hope and i appreciate you saying that uh it is it you know to be at this stage in my life to be have a more veteran perch on things it is 
you know, it took, takes a long time, as you know, to get to a certain place. And um, you've got to be in the trenches and you've got to, you, you know, you got to be on the cop's beat when you're in your, when you're a kid yeah. and you got to, you, you got to, you got to write about the school board and you got to write about the, you, but you have to do that to, to get to a certain place. And I'm very grateful for that. I'm, I hated it when I was doing it. I didn't like covering night cops in Baltimore, but you know, if you stick with it and you keep your mind open, you can, you can, you can really learn. And, and I feel fortunate now that I was on night cops in Baltimore. Right. Um, if that makes sense. There's not a straight line from from getting home at six o'clock in the morning on the overnight shift to being able to write a book like this. But and who knew we would have Twitter and social media and connect with strangers who 240 character tweets. Who knew? We didn't know that was going to happen, but it does. And I'm very grateful. Right. And the last thing I think I want to maybe address, you've been very gracious with your time. What do you think the role of storytellers remains today the ability to tell a story accurately fairly economically is one of the most powerful tools we have to change and repair the world around us it is more crucial than ever i agree with that assessment because uh, no matter what it is where you're from what it is you have to share where you've been the stories are the things that connect us to ourselves and to each other like i'm i believe that right. it's it's a very powerful tool especially coming out of the the really tumultuous four years that we had where the truth was so tarnished it was so buried under lies and lies were lies were the truth and truth it was so it was just so exhausting to be in the midst of those stories that were just shot at us like they were coming out of a water cannon. And I think the ability to be able to, you know, sit back and process and look and see where we are, where we're going, um, stories really help undergird us safely for the future. We can draw on on the lessons that we learned from that. A woman. Gabrielle Glazer, her book is American (laughs) Baby, A Mother, A Child, and the Shadow History of Adoption, and it's available everywhere, and I thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your your beautiful thoughts. Thank you so much for having me. It was really lovely to to connect again. I really appreciate the time and the, the insightful questions. It's really lovely. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I've had a fantastic time. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. For questions or comments, reach me at janalopez.com. And when you're having a moment of identity doubt, just remember that seeing is relieving. Really